that that's my my big vision for the future and then you know of course we'll have hyperloop and we'll be going to mars and um we'll have ai well i mean we'll have robots writing symphonies Welcome to the Impactivism Podcast, where we explore how each of us, as individuals, can get better at doing good. I'm your host, Logan Sullivan, and this is episode number nine. Today I have with me a very special guest, Jordan Lejuan. So he is the, I guess he's the founder of many things. He's the founder of HighExistence.com, the founder of the Valhalla Movement, founder of Rave Nectar, and last but definitely not least, the co-founder and current CTO of Futurism.com, among a number of other things. But uh, we don't, maybe we don't have time to list everything. So with I guess futurism.com. So with somewhere like a 4.5 to 5 million Facebook followers, if that's an indicator of anything, I suppose they're doing all right. Uh, and back in January, Jordan also found himself listed as one of Forbes 30 under 30 for up and coming in the media category. And he just honestly never seems to stop. Uh, he's a very close friend of mine and one of my favorite people to just philosophize with. You know, that is in those rare moments that he actually slows down. In ways, I think our minds have a lot in common, but are coming from somewhat different perspectives. You know, his from that of technology and mine very much from elsewhere, (laughs) though I'm working on that. And that's an objective of mine over the last year and into the future to become a bit more technologically savvy. And Jordan is definitely helping me. So I think we, we both have kind of similar visions for a more beautiful future that we believe, you know, can be achieved. But again, they have their nuances, our, our visions, I think, which makes for very interesting conversations and constantly and opportunities to learn. On, I could honestly talk to him all day, and I tried to keep this episode uh, under an hour, as painful as that was, but I guess I actually have talked to him all day before, but that was somewhere in the woods with no microphone, so next time I'll, I'll, I'll come more prepared. Uh, I, I guess he helps color in my, in a lot of ways, my technological naivete and I try to shine some light on parts of the globe where technology is lacking or where I guess few people have I don't know touched a laptop let alone virtual reality goggles so hopefully it's a give and take but he definitely teaches me uh, more than I have to offer him so today in this episode Jordan enlightens me as he often does on a few of his visions for the future uh, you know what it, you know, what he sees to have potential to solve some of the biggest problems uh, that our world faces, and these range from artificial intelligence to cryptocurrencies to meditation to universal basic income and all the way to virtual reality in refugee camps, to name a few. So. Uh, if you like this conversation to come and you enjoy the theme of the podcast, uh, please consider subscribing on iTunes. And if you really like it, leaving a review on iTunes goes incredibly far, especially at the early ages of the podcast like I'm at right now. 
Uh, so if you do want to help spread the word and you like these ideas, please consider sharing, 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 reviewing, and all that good stuff. So I guess that's enough for now. So let's just jump right into it. Uh, the conversation with Jordan starts uh, by him sharing a little bit more about his background and we'll move forward from there. My story gets interesting around 2009. I was going to school at, at University of Southern California and wasn't really happy with everything um, in that I was learning there to like basically become a manager at some big corporation. And I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Um, and so uh, I decided to stop going to class and didn't really know what I wanted to do in, instead of class. Um, and I was, at the same time, I was also reading a whole lot about meditation and psychedelics and productivity and like all these really fascinating things that I'd never heard about before and figured out there wasn't really one place online that put all of those topics um, into like one blog or like one website. So I started learning how to code, created a, a just a personal blog called High, High Existence that talked about all of those things. You constructed eventually... the site too? You built the whole thing? Well, yeah. I, okay. I mean, it started off as just like a WordPress theme, which anyone can do. But as I uh, wanted to add more features and make it look better, I le started learning HTML and CSS. Um, just like just on the internet, it's like the best thing to learn on the internet is code because the internet's made of code. And um, eventually, like two years down the line, it got really big, mostly thanks to StumbleUpon.com, and ballooned into a giant community of people talking about this uh, these topics. Uh, a lot of people that you know grew up in the you know, some random town in Arkansas and were really interested in meditation and knew nobody that even knew what it was, let alone wanted to talk about it or practice it. Um, yeah, so it was this really cool, like online unifier people interested in enhancing their lives and, you know, getting more out of life and thinking about life differently. Um, and that pretty much has blossomed into everything else that I've been involved with since. Uh, right after that, I talked to someone through someone I met through High Existence and they invited me to join a project that was building a sustainable community and online movement centered around making sustainable and communal living mainstream. That was called the Valhalla Movement. So I moved up to Montreal for a year and a half and built that. While I was there, I kickstarted a clothing company called Rave Nectar that is uh, basically takes visionary art and prints it all over clothing. You've you've definitely seen companies like this nowadays, but it's mostly for festival goers. And then the latest thing, which I'm just super excited about, is uh, futurism.com which is a news website and we write about advancements in science and technology, like all the futuristic stuff, VR, self-driving cars, artificial intelligence, all the things that are going to be drastically changing our world in the next 10, 20, 50, 100 years. And hopefully the things that can solve some problems in the process. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So. <laughs> we're, we're certainly not short on problems. So Indeed, man. I guess that's what I'm trying to talk Well. Maybe that's a bad way to put it that I want to talk about the problems. I want to talk about the solutions to the problems. And in the process, I guess the problems come up. So, um, you know, you, of all people I know, I think have a vantage point to see what technologies are on the horizon that might be addressing problems that we face in the world in the broadest sense and what tools we can maybe use, hopefully as individuals too both now and maybe what to be looking for in the coming, I don't know, in, in the near future, as mm -hmm. far as, uh, you know, what we can access to get a little bit better at trying to do good things in the world, alleviate suffering, 
increase well-being and try to just uh, make this planet a little bit better, right? Well, we can jump right into my favorite, which I, is kind of like going to the big one first, but um, universal basic income, mm. which is, uh, I mean, not it's kind of like a little bit outside of our buckets that we write about at Futurism, but it's still, it's one of the most common things we do write about because I think it very much goes along with all the other trends that we're seeing. And so the big thing here is that automation is, is happening at a, a crazy pace. We're coming up with robots that are more physically capable. And then we also have the artificial intelligence side of software that's getting a lot smarter. And we're slowly automating um, jobs out of existence. Uh, actually, we're very quickly automating jobs out of existence. Um, I mean, the, the next one that's going to be like a big shocker is self-driving trucks. The single most uh, prevalent job in the entire United States is truck drivers. And Is it really? You know, that's the... Isn't it? It was shocking, right? I saw something yeah. on that very recently. Maybe that was actually on futurism. It probably was, but <laughs> tell me more. Tell me more. Uh, so there's several companies uh, right now that are doing self-driving trucks. And self-driving cars are probably the most like imminent technology that we write about, mm -hmm. where it's like almost not even in the future. It's happening now. Mm -hmm. I mean, Google has Google's been working on it for like, what, seven, eight years now. It's legal to have a self-driving car in California. They've been doing... Um, you know, millions of miles of tests in on physical streets, as well as like hundreds of billions of miles, um, you know, just in software, algorithmically. So we're very, very good at driving, at, at doing self-driving. And where can I can I ask when? What's the time frame on that becoming in your mind? When does that become normal? When can you expect to see years. that outside of California? What's that? Easily within five years, like by, by 2020. So okay. I guess even less than five years now. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's the uh, the major roadblocks for that are, are less so technological at this point and more so legal. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, we, I mean, we have some of the basically the world's largest companies working on the same problem, mm -hmm. which is Google and Uber, as well as like a plethora of other ones. All the major car companies, also, you know, mm -hmm. Ford, Toyota, all of them. Um, so once we have a self-driving car that can navigate uh, and be more safe than a human being, which is not difficult because we're not very good at driving. I think I think the number is 80,000 deaths a year in the U.S. thanks to accidents. Once we have self-driving trucks, there's really no reason why companies would continue to pay humans to do it. They're more expensive. Uh, it's less safe. They have to do healthcare. They, there's all you know sorts of problems with hiring humans. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, however many hundreds of thousands of truck drivers are out there, maybe the number might even be in millions. Um, where do those people go? Uh, they don't really have other skills. They're mostly uneducated like there's you know there's a reason why they're they're driving trucks um so what happens and that's just one industry that's going to be completely like decimated mm -hmm. by um by automation there's also manufacturing like 3d printing is, is still very very young um very very basic but we've gotten a lot better at that too in the last few years we can now 3d print using multiple materials at the same time using metals our, our precision is getting finer and finer to the point where there's a, with a combination of 3D printing and with robotic, you know, like physical robots, um, there's not really going to be many jobs for factory workers anymore, which is another extremely prevalent job in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, Foxconn, the company that's behind making all of our iPhones, is in process of automating uh, out all of their fit, their human jobs right now. <laughs> I know all this is happening to an extent, but the it always feels like it's in the future that it's it's not actually coming but it's still 15 years down the line but you yeah. know it's not is it it's it's here no it's, it's really not and then we have this other trend on the other on the flip side of things with job creation where 
today, like the largest companies do so much more with so many fewer workers. You know, like it's now now the biggest companies are software companies and they just don't require as much manpower, especially as we continue to automate tasks using AI. So we have kind of like two trends converging. And it seems like, I mean, everyone seems to agree that the inevitable outcome of this will be mass unemployment. And uh, it's it's not like it takes 100 percent unemployment to create a, a Great Depression. That's that's that was never the case. It was what was it, 20 percent? Unemployment, 20, 25 percent unemployment no, don't, is like don't, don't give me history test live right now. Yeah, I always forget the number, <laughs> but it was a shockingly low number. You mm-hmm. don't need to, you know, not everyone needs to be out of work for the economy to be in sure. complete disarray. Sure. Um, so and I mean, the politicians answers are let's create more jobs. Let's, you know, let's I don't know, let's build more bridges. And I think that, you know, you they are going to be able to create some more jobs, although they've been failing at doing that. Uh, but they're not going to be able to replace all of these things. And <clears throat> so the only answer that to this problem that I've come across is universal basic income. Mm-hmm. And if you're not familiar with that, it's the idea of the government provide, or giving every single citizen of the United States or whatever country one or there's many numbers being tossed around. But the, the most common is a thousand dollars per month yeah. and four hundred dollars per month per child. And it's unconditional in that you still get this money, even if you're making $100,000 a year, a million dollars a year. Um, but it, it would generally come along with a, a different tax plan such that if you're making $100,000, you're not actually getting, you know, a hundred or a thousand extra dollars a month. You're getting taxed at a higher rate. That's how it would be paid for. Um, so I, I mean, for one, I think this is inevitable. Uh, it, it must be implemented because of the whole automating jobs out of existence trend. But at the same time, there's so many other amazing things that come out of implementing a universal basic income. Mm-hmm. Um, I've long seen it as like a, the panacea that really solves like just a myriad of other problems and um, forms this amazing foundation foundation upon which people can actually spend their time fixing many of the other world's problems. Mm-hmm. Um, imagine that. Yeah. Imagine we were not, you know, forced for every practical reason we can come up with to take the job that we don't actually necessarily believe in or try to do, you know, something, study something, become familiar with something, learn uh, about something just so it can provide us, you know, with the practicality of a guaranteed income at some point in our life. Instead, if we didn't have to worry about our basic survival in that sense, having that minimum, you know, amount to get by, imagine what that frees up as far as what we explore, you know, what we research what we try to understand more and get good at which would certainly you know free up a lot of people to go into other industries and areas of of inquisition and research and yeah i I just uh, imagine right i think i think you have imagined that a bit more than i have but absolutely yeah like the common question is like how many einsteins have we missed out on because Mm -hmm. they were stuck doing their job in the Mm mailroom like luckily for us einstein was like you know screw this i'm gonna go and uh and do what i'm gonna do but um, there's, I feel like there's just so much wasted human capital doing jobs that are, one, just not very useful, and two, that they're not stepping fully into what they're like put here to do, which would be amazing. So imagine if we had, even if we had like 10% more people like in their bliss doing what they're amazing at, what would that do for the world? And then there's like a, just a plethora of other amazing arguments for EBI. Um, poverty like hunger, home, the homeless, like that's a problem, to I name think. a couple, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, you might say that, oh, we have existing systems for this, we have welfare, we have help for the homeless. It's like, no, not really, actually, it's 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 a pretty effed up system right now. 
um, where homeless people have to jump through enormous legal hoops. They have to receive uh, mail and respond to things at addresses that they don't have because they're homeless. Um, so even if a homeless person wants to receive benefits, which they're often not even able to like even attempt because they're suffering from mental illness, even if they want to, they often can't because of uh, legal loopholes. Mm -hmm. Whereas UBI would just be unconditional. You're not signing paperwork to get this. You just get the money and you're able to spend it as you please. Um, and then there's also the, the problem of the existing welfare system, which is actually a huge disincentive for people to get back into um, the job economy. Because like right now, say you're getting $1,000 a month on welfare, as soon as you get your the job that you're going to get, which is probably not a very good job, it's probably paying you minimum wage. Even if you worked, if you worked, sorry, if you started working full time on that job, you would get paid a little bit more or roughly the same or possibly even less than you were when you had no job. Um, whereas basic income, there is no disincentive. So you're getting this $1,000 a month just to cover your basic cost, make sure you have a roof over your head and you have food and water and can, you know, you can be happy. Um, and then you have the, this incentive still to get a job so you can have an even higher standard of living. The point is there is a base level. We care about, you know, we have human decency enough. We have enough decency to make sure that everyone is at least taken care of at the most basic of levels. So three things maybe. So first, if people are interested, do you have any recommendations of, of more materials on this topic to be able to learn? Also, I guess second, how, if people are interested, might they be able to get involved in that conversation? And um, third, do you feel there's, I guess, have you looked into the uh, potential of this globally speaking? Or is the conversation really more limited to how do you make that a reality within your own country, it would seem like the most potential for that model would arise in the, you know, country, less developed countries, I suppose, of course, where basic needs are much harder met. And um, I don't know, maybe is that a conversation taking place or or not at this point? Mm -hmm. uh, I guess I'll go over resources at the end. Um, in terms of your last question, poverty is relative. Um I mean, I mean, we have a tremendous poverty problem in the U.S. I mean, you could say that, yeah, people are have less in a country, uh, you know, like in Africa. But um, I would just say that, yeah, poverty is relative. And uh, it, this is something that it needs to be implemented everywhere. Of course. And it's probably easier to implement in your hometown because, you know, the people there, you know, the culture, you know how to how to get things done in your country. Um, but experiments about or experiments with UBI are taking place all over the world in like tens of different countries right now. There's, I mean, many European countries that have uh, at least proposals to implement this. Um, there are a lot of many like small scale experiments happening in like everything from very small like tribes in Africa to uh, cities in Canada, things like that. Um, and I've been looking for like really good arguments against it for a while. And if anyone re like listening to this podcast has a good argument, yeah. uh, please send it to me. But I, you always hear the same ones. You hear, um, one, aren't people lazy? If we give them money, aren't they going to do nothing? And my answer to that is like, no, I don't think in, people are inherently lazy. I think they're inherently creative. And then if someone's sitting on their ass for a, for a year, they're going to get real bored and want to do something. <laughs> um, and then the other uh, argument against against that, I think, false argument is that it's not enough money to be happy, especially like not in the US. It's not meant to be enough for you to just be like, all right, I'm good. 
you're still in poverty. A thousand dollars a month is not a lot of money. I mean, depending on where you live, if you want to be like a normal functioning member of society and be able to go out to eat like once a month, you're still going to have to contribute to society in some way and, and have a job. So uh, there's that. And then there's like, how do we afford it? There's a myriad number of ways that we could afford it. I mean, we could eat into the, the enormous defense bill that we have. Um, there's some very, very specific uh, plans for implementing, implementing um, wealth-based taxes, which I think is is more than fair. I mean, I'm I'm in an upper income bracket, but like, come on, the the overall effect of uh, redistributing that wealth, like, you know, if what is the what is the phrase? Uh, a rising tide raises all boats, mm. something like that. Mm. It's like everything will be better everything if we can only just see past ourselves for a little bit doesn't it feel so simple and it really does we we have these these persisting arguments that tend to continually cite i don't know things that seem to have proven themselves wrong time and again but i guess that's a a different conversation maybe right like my life has been like made so much better through the invention of all these different technologies and like airplanes and i mean you think the wright brothers had a lot of money maybe it, it actually i Maybe I shouldn't say that. I have no idea. Maybe they were like the rich kids. But, you know, how many amazing things have been created by people with fewer resources? So if we enabled more and more people to create amazing things, all of our lives would be better. Hmm. Um, and if you are interested in learning more about UBI, I would check out uh, mainly this guy, Scott Santens, S-A-N-T-E-N-S. Um, he writes a lot on medium.com. He's like the, ma- like the major online proponent of UBI, um, amongst many others. Uh, and then also the Reddit, the subreddit for basic income, which is our uh, basic income. Okay. I'll throw those in the show notes, some links to those so you can find those for sure. Okay. So, okay, here's one thing. How 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 then can we utilize, uh, I don't know, existing technologies to help us maybe implement that or become more familiar with it? Maybe we're utilizing that now and how we're testing these models in the, the, the countries that we're currently testing them? Or I don't know, does that fall into the tech sphere uh, very Oh, absolutely, easily? yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would say the number one thing is just proliferating this information, using the internet for what it's best at, which is like just, just spreading information and ideas so that when this legislation comes up, as it inevitably will uh, due to job automation and job loss, um, that people are aware of it and aware of what it can do. So there's not this like, you know, crazy outcry of like crying communism or whatever in the U.S. Um, to I guess we could talk about blockchain, mm-hmm. which is also really interesting. Something that most people have heard of but probably don't fully understand. Yeah, um, help us understand. Okay, so blockchain is one of those things that will be will have just wide sweeping implications. Will probably change the world in 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 more. Uh, it's 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 very much like on par with AI and how it's going to change everything, but it's going to be invisible. It's just going to make everything work a lot better. Um, so you've probably heard of Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And have you heard of Bitcoin? Yes, I've, I've heard. It. I don't know much okay. too much about it, but <laughs> cool. So, yeah, I think people just know it as like kind of a technological alternative currency sure. that like skyrocketed in value over the course of a year. That's the extent um, of my knowledge right there. Precisely. <laughs> so uh bitcoin is basically the that was the first implementation of an idea called the blockchain which is i'm going to use some words that aren't very friendly but then i'll explain them a distributed ledger mm-hmm. um so basically when you have a bitcoin wallet you have like this really long like you know i think it's like a 20 character uh code that indicates that what you know your wallet id 
And then when you send a piece or like a, a number of Bitcoins to someone else's wallet, it gets put on this blockchain, this like online distributed, totally transparent ledger that says that Logan sent this amount of blockchain or out of, this amount of Bitcoin to Jordan. Mm-hmm. So it's like totally transparent and you can verify it. And the way it works, I it's a, it's a little bit hard, difficult to understand, but there's basically people that are running their computers at full capacity and solving these incredibly difficult to solve um, cryptographic puzzles, basically, that just require a a ton of computing power. Um, and basically, it, they use that as a method to to validate the transactions and make sure that it, it actually happened and it's not false. Um, so it's very, very, you would have to have basically more computers under your power than everyone else in, that's involved in this around the world in order to falsify a transaction. Mm-hmm. So just that's basically the thing to know is that okay. anything that happens on blockchain is like true and validated and like able to be very clearly validated. And Bitcoin is is like, it's kind of, it's simple. It's just a currency. However, there are other currencies that are meant to be actual like software languages that use that same technology to build other things um, like a decentralized Dropbox. This is probably the best example to, to uh, learn how blockchain works and why it's important. So right now, Dropbox is great. You know, there's like a central entity and they allow you to, you know, purchase storage outside of your computer. Um, but using the blockchain, you could actually build a completely decentralized version of Dropbox that has no central regulating entity. Um, and so let's say I have a bunch of space on my computer that I'm not using and you have a ton of extra files that you need space for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so using kind of like a torrents, so you would send thousands of tiny, uh, parts of your files and and it, it would all be, um, encrypted so that I couldn't actually read what your files are. You would send those. I would be storing those um, on my computer. There's no way I could see, you know, whose whose files they were, or what they are. So it's like it's anonymous and private. Um, and then using software, it would automatically track how many, you know, megabytes of your files I'm storing for what period of time. And then you would automatically pay me through the blockchain for all that file storage. Interesting. So it's a way to okay. it's blockchain basically enables. Uh, things to occur that would normally require like a, a mediating arm in the middle, but because of this automated trust system, um, you no longer need that. What what would be the implications of this? What's what's the most practical way this is put to use to to solve our major problems? I suppose. Uh, so I mean, one very basic usage is just being able to send um, money to anyone instantly without any fee. Mm. Like right now, there's a huge racket of people like sending money from the U.S. back to their families yes, in yes, yes, South yes. America or Africa and just getting screwed. Mm-hmm. But with this, it's it's Western instant. Union. Yeah. Yep. Western Union. Oh my gosh, evil. It's and yeah. there's one on every corner in every develop you know developing country in the world because you know it's a huge portion of income in these countries are earned outside of the country and sent back to families. And, you know, when somebody in the family is lucky enough to get a visa, working visa in the U.S. or in Europe somewhere or in a country, you know, Dubai, they have high earning potential. They send the majority of that back and it becomes a large portion of an entire, you know, wide, wider family's income. And then, you know, by a simple solution like that, you can maybe sometimes increase a family's income by 10 percent, you know, automatically doing nothing just by solving that problem. Exactly. And then there's a just solving the issue of transparency. Say that there's a, a nonprofit that wants to be completely transparent about how they spend their funds. They could do everything that they they could do all their spending um, and accounting on blockchain. 
they could just like as soon as they get USD transfer into a currency or a cryptocurrency um, and then you could see exactly like exactly where your money went like you know down to the recipient which would be really cool interesting um, and then there's you know all these businesses that benefit just simply from being a middleman uh, the biggest one is banks like that's a pretty big industry uh, and there's already people working on cryptographic banks where um, you know all the, even they're they're offering all the same services as banks uh, with you know loaning out money for through people um, uh, lo sorry loaning out your money to other people saving your money giving you interest and all that stuff um, but there's no central entity that's trying to, to make as much money as possible. It's just like a, a imagine that, uh, right? Exactly. <laughs> like there's just, there's a lot of middlemen that we could cut out oh, with this technology and ensure a lack of, uh, a lack of corruption and total transparency. There, there is an organization called give directly, which is mm -hmm. a really, uh, highly impactful, highly effective organization that sort of specializes in you, you give your donation all 100% of that goes directly to individuals in uh, you know the places that can use it most, and a lot of research is being done uh, to try to understand how that money is being spent when it has no stipulate or you know there's there's no nothing saying this money has to be spent in a, a specific way. Uh, of course, empowering and entrusting that you know the person that might be needing this in this particular circumstance would be spending it wisely. So, in that case, you know, in putting this to use, maybe in in underdeveloped countries what would be the you know these most of these places are the majority i i suppose of the face of the earth you know is not quite ready technologically as far as um you know i i mean at least in in the countries i've, I've been working in and where these crises are happening and it might be most needed it's all sort of uh, a cash economy there's very little um you know almost nowhere that you can even use a debit card how can it happen that we can skip that you know that step going from cash maybe to this yeah well i'm not sure about jumping from like cash to bitcoin because there would, i mean at some point there would have to be some exchange from a physical currency to digital currency but um i mean once that once that hop did happen you'd be protected from you know severe fluctuation in currency value you know like when a uh, when a regime falls in a corrupt country and all of a sudden their money is totally worthless, mm -hmm. if they were instead using a cryptocurrency, then they would be unaffected by that because mm -hmm. it'd be a, it's a global universal currency. Sure. Uh, and then like kind of a more interesting application of this is uh, actually a good friend of mine um, is working on a uh, crypto poker, online poker company. Okay. So it can also be used to kind of like circumvent the law in ways, you know, like I think there, that sure. you should be free to play online poker personally. Um, I'd have to agree. And all of their rules are uh, based upon where the game is being hosted. You know, uh, where are the servers located that um, is hosting this poker game? And if it's a completely decentralized kind of like BitTorrent, if it's a decentralized poker game, there is no one server that is hosting it. And there's not even a person that's hosting the game and taking the rake, which is actually the illegal part. Um, you as a player are totally free to play online poker. You just you can't be the one hosting it and taking the rake. Interesting. Um, okay. So yeah, he's building a company that will make it legal everywhere, no matter where you are, to play online poker. There's Again. some potential in that, I'd say. I think I think there's a little bit of potential. <laughs> yeah, okay. and I like anything that can kind of circumvent laws if need be. So sure, sure, sounds yeah. good to me. Okay, interesting. Um, I, I did want to ask a couple things. I did listen to a talk that you gave recently about VR and uh, and augmented reality, and I was 
I think that wasn't even a very recent talk. That was maybe the end of 2016 still. And I don't know how uh-huh. much changes in that period of time for anything, any other conversation that's probably considered very recent, but who knows how much has changed since then. Uh, I mean, I, I kind of got interested in the topics a couple years back and I did some research and familiarized myself with where we stood and I stepped away and I hadn't done that for a while. And then I started to again recently and it's just blown my mind what's happened just in that period of time. And mm-hmm. the way I'm often thinking about new, I guess, new technology as, you know, unversed as I may be, or, you know, anything else that I come across, I'm researching often with the, from the perspective of how can this be utilized to try and, you know, figure out how to improve the world we live in. I've certainly had, you know, ideas myself that maybe don't make any sense as far as as what (laughs) they can be used for. I don't know. I could be completely wrong, but maybe you can uh, tell us a little bit about blow some people's minds about where we stand with virtual reality, augmented reality. And, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is the way that they can be used for both educational purposes and for you know, creating an experience that can really uh, awaken people's empathy to try to understand. I think, you know, when we see, I think you used the, the you compared virtual reality now to that point back in, uh, you know, during the Vietnam War, when we're first starting to really see these vivid images on the ground. And that, you know, in a lot of ways can be accredited with a, a title shift in people's understanding and uh, maybe leading to a large, you know, peace movement uh, thereafter. And maybe that can be hugely accredited for that. So maybe at, at this point, when we look at what virtual reality is capable of, it seems, you know, that could be infinitely more impactful than any 2D image. And I just can't imagine, I guess, maybe I can put it this way. My, from my experiences in, uh, you know, the context that I've been working in, having seen these these uh, realities firsthand that's where you know i i saw them on the news my entire life but it never hit me it never struck and mm-hmm. seeing these experiencing them firsthand that changed everything and now you know it's impossible to ignore and impossible to you know live a life that's not that that's not at least partially somewhat central to so Maybe mm. there's potential there. I know that some UN agencies have tried to implement some of these things. At the a World Humanitarian Summit last year in uh, in Turkey, there was a virtual reality booth showing people, I think, the insides of refugee camps and what it might look like. And so I just I'm envisioning so much potential there, but I I don't know how that manifests or becomes a you know a uh, a tool that can really be used and that people want to use, you know, maybe you can shed some light on that. I'll stop talking. (laughs) Not my territory. (laughs) Okay. So I guess the first thing to talk about just in case, um, well, have you tried a a real VR headset? Like a, I did. Yeah. I, I, uh, I played, uh, Android Jones, his, uh, his game at burning man. Oh, oh, you did. Awesome. Yeah. 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 And at, uh, at, at symbiosis. Yeah. I was with, I was with your brother at symbiosis playing it actually, Ben. Oh, cool. (laughs) Have you you played that? Have you seen that? No, I was, I was just talking to someone about this the other day, so I'll have to. It blew me away. I mean, I'm blowing these, you know, for those who don't know Android Jones, he's like a, a visionary kind of psychedelic artist that, you know, creates some of the most mind blowing, um, you know, pieces I've ever seen. And he took a lot of that and 
maybe you can explain the technical side, but created a sort of uh, virtual reality game where you're holding these remotes and you're pressing the buttons and you're kind of shooting into existence all of his artwork. It's incredible. Blew me away. I don't know if that's like, if that's at the forefront or if that's just something like years ago that, uh, you know, maybe I can be blown away 10 times as much by now. I don't know. Uh, I guess the basic thing to understand if you haven't, um, if you, if you guys listening haven't tried a real VR headset and by real VR headset, I mean one that's not, um, powered by putting your mobile phone in like this cheap plastic headset. That's kind of like a Game Boy versus what's available now with like a PS4 (laughs) basically. Uh, so I really encourage you to try a real one, I like, like a Vive Game Oculus, Boy, but I love Game, uh, Game Boy. Boy is great. <laughs> Game Boy is great, but it's, yeah, <laughs> maybe not Game uh, Boy version of VR. All right. Sorry, <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Uh, but the the main thing to understand here is that um, if you fool just two of your senses, your brain starts to believe that what you're seeing and experiencing is real. Mm-hmm. So with VR, you you have the helmet on, and when you look left, the thing you're looking at and that's appearing to you on the screen moves left, so it's it's uh, fooling you visually. And you have earphones on that are also 360 sounds. Like, you know, when you turn your head, the sound also moves like it would in real life. And so this, just those two cues, you don't need touch or smell or, uh, or anything else to, for your brain to start really believing what you're, what you're seeing is real. And I think that that makes a lot of sense from an evolutionary point of view. I mean, it's like our ancestors have ever been presented with two false senses before. I highly doubt that. Um, and so the, the classic one that I always show people for the first time is called uh, the Plank Experience. And you start off at the bottom of a skyscraper, you turn around and there's elevator doors, and you walk in the elevator, turn around, and then uh, people always freak out because you, you have a remote in your hand and you're, all your movement's being tracked. So you go in to touch the elevator button and it actually like, you know, moves and people are like, oh my gosh, that's like the, the moment where um, the reality kind of becomes real for them. And then the doors close, you go up, you know, 70 or so stories and the doors open and then you're staring like off the edge of the skyscraper and there's just a thin wooden plank in front of you. And then you're, you know, you got to walk the plank. I I saw this, I saw this during your talk and it was in 2D on my computer, like in the background of, you know, you giving your presentation. And (laughs) even then it made my palms kind of like a little sweaty and I'm trying to imagine you know, having all this on and being fully immersed. Yeah, it's it's terrifying. I mean, I always ask people before, like, are you afraid of heights? And sometimes people are like, no, not at all. But I'm like, eh, okay, we'll see. Uh, you really feel like you could die, like you could fall off. Um, you know, I've even like, t- you know, taken the headset off and put it back on. And like, you just go right back in the mode of, mm-hmm. of assuming that this is real. It, so uh, it does took that me reality check take you away enough to be able to step out? Or do you just take it off and you're right back in it? Pretty much right back in it. Really? Wow. Yeah. Okay. It took me a few tries to eventually like step off because you can step off and actually fall off. Um, some people are really brave and they can do it the first time, but they usually still like flail a little bit when, <laughs> you know, when they start falling. Yeah. I imagine it's yeah. got to be funny to watch people, you know, doing this without, I don't know, being involved because they have the headphones on. They're fully immersed, but they're not really aware that somebody's watching them anymore. I was constantly aware of that when I had it on at the festival because I was in this tent where I found this like VR setup like on the side and no one was there and it was on. So I was just using it. But then I kept thinking, like, OK, did this whole room fill up with people now? And I'm still <laughs> just here, like shooting things into existence. And... <laughs> totally. It's even more fun to push them off the blank. Yeah. <laughs> what I do if they don't jump the first time. <laughs> but, um, 
yeah, so so no is extremely real. And then we can talk about some of the more interesting implications, which is exactly what you're talking about. Um, if there's a tsunami tsunami happening in Japan, it's one thing to see you know a TV report on a TV television and be like, oh, that sucks. Like, oh man, that's pretty bad. But what if you can strap on a VR headset and you can be there and you can see the water rushing past you? You can see like a, you know an old man like floating downstream on like a you know what's left of a house. Like mm -hmm. it's incredible. It's just so much more visceral. Um, have you, you know, have you seen anything like that yourself? Well, there's a few um, like documentaries. Basically, I haven't seen any like live action, uh, you know, like disaster footage in VR. Um, but the the one that I was talking about in that talk. Um, I'm forgetting the name of it now, but it, yeah, it, it took you through, um, as you said, a refugee camp mm -hmm. and you followed this little girl and she showed you like where she lives and yeah. what her life is like. That's the one I saw. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was really powerful. Like you're there in the refugee camp. And that was at Zatari camp in Jordan, right? Is that what it was? Uh, I'm not sure actually. Okay. Yeah. But it's, you know, it takes something that is just so far away and out of our consciousness and just drops you into it. Um, so much that you can't help but care, you know, a little bit more and probably a lot more after you step out of it. Yeah, I'm interested. I want to I really want to see that because I worked in that camp and I'm pretty sure that's where it was recorded. I want to like, you know, maybe does that actually take me back to the place that I was before? Is it that real or, you know, having actually experienced that particular setting? Is it a little less novel or is it less impactful? I'm not sure. Uh, yeah. And the crazy thing is that this technology is super young. Um, I mean, Oculus Rift was the first um, headset that like actually did it. We've been trying to do VR for 30 years. Um, and that only, I think, believe that Kickstarter was like in 2011. Um, so this is super young. I mean, the, the resolution on these videos is not very good. We still haven't figured out how to shoot good VR footage. You know, it's all, you've seen 360 videos, you know, they're, yeah. they're okay. They're not high res because the files are too big. Do they look better with the uh, goggles on than they actually do? And I, I watched some like YouTube videos that are filmed in 3D kind of, and it's not very impressive. No, it's not very impressive. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the most impressive things in VR are not video. They're okay. just, you know, they're like video games. Yeah, they're things sure. that have been digitally rendered. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, imagine having, you know, perfect resolution the resolution that you see in um which i don't know how, i can't say how far off that is but you know, we'll get there ask, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> how long does that take before we're like actually floating down the amazon river you know in a in a, our living right. room right yeah or to where i can actually feel what's going on in the yeah. vr world or, or smell it Whoa. yeah that's scary it... all right i have to ask this from your perspective uh, a strong advocate of the you know potentials of technology do you have a f what fear exists there? Do you think that when you're, I don't know, expo this again, maybe very ignorant and probably what a lot of people are thinking, maybe who haven't thought about it much before, does that, do you have a fear that this, I don't know, overstimulation of our, maybe of our brain in, in, in these settings alters how we're going to be feeling about the rest of the world when we step out of these experiences? Um, does it, I don't know, does it fundamentally alter like our experience of the real world as time goes on if we're exposed to it too much i don't know is that maybe that's a, a dumb question i don't know tell me uh, it's, no it's an interesting interesting question i think it's absolutely going to change everything just like how the internet has changed everything uh, we're going to see some just radical things happen in our lifetime especially when it comes to ai mm -hmm. um, i mean imagine when um there is a robot out there that can do everything that you can do but a, a billion times faster 
um, that brings in a question like, what does it mean to be human? Like, what are we here for? Sure. Are we here to just like enjoy life? Like that doesn't sound very meaningful. So I think within our lifetime, we're going to have to completely um, redefine what it means to be human and like, you know, what we're doing here. And then with VR, I, I mean, I don't know. I'm, as with any new advancement in technology, there's there's probably there's going to be negatives and positive effects. But the way I see it is that all these advancements are inevitable. There's, I mean, we've been advancing and advancing for for centuries. I don't see us stopping. So there's no point in being like fearful of them. Um, and I'm just, I'm really excited to see the the upsides of these things. Yeah. Or maybe at the point where the potential, you know, of either direction of seems infinite that it can be infinitely positive and at the same time it could potentially be infinitely uh negative to the extent of even you know the end of our species at like the extreme end of that spectrum when we're talking about ai conundrums and Mm -hmm. uh i look at like children now that i see i don't know staring at tablets here in the states and I, I come back and that's such an extreme contrast to children you know like i was spent most of this last year in nigeria children playing on the streets in nigeria is a very different situation and it scares me thinking i guess just a moment ago i kind of felt more hopeful than i felt before but it scares me in the sense that is it cueing people into a screen so much that they're enjoying the rest of the world less or potentially maybe where I got, uh, I was feeling optimistic for a moment was, does it bring, uh, does it bring the rest of the world and, and that love for nature or respect for, um, I don't know, a national park that you can't actually visit and you can go see it every night from your bedroom. Does that give more respect to help us protect it or to help us uh, give it some value that we carry on through generations and that our value for the rest of the world doesn't really die with, I don't know, a couple generations from now. What right. do you think on that? Is that? I, yeah, I think I I probably have a a pretty polarizing view on this, mm-hmm. and that is that I don't think that experiencing a, a digital world is any is like inherently worse or better than experiencing the real world. Mm. You know, like like I where's, where you're coming from? Like, so what what like what is your argument there? Like, why are you concerned about people spending um, too much time, mm-hmm. quote unquote, too much time in VR? Yeah, I guess. I mean, it would probably boil down to thinking about if I grew up in a context where I maybe maybe looking at the difference of my friends who grew up watching television all day, every day versus the friends that didn't have the television, who found so much more value in experiences outdoors and then grew to maybe value the outdoors a bit more and found themselves living a life that protected it and that valued it while those that you know didn't get, weren't given those experiences growing up they ended up maybe living in a way that was a little bit more destructive i don't that that's certainly not always the case by any means but i guess with that in mind i fear maybe not myself maybe not our generation but those born into a a world where we can create a virtual reality that's more appealing than the actual reality, will they have the same value systems as far as protecting, you know, our environment in a sense that's beyond human, you know, valuation, but also by protecting our environment, we have implications on every other species of living being, you know, in the world. So if we can, maybe if we can make the argument that it doesn't really matter from a human perspective, 
what are the implications on the rest of life, right, on Earth? If, mm-hmm. if we start to devalue that, devalue the the forest mm-hmm. because we can create a digital version to enjoy, and so mm-hmm. it's okay to ha- overly develop or be less cautious in how we're um, conducting our business, then mm-hmm. I'm fearful that we continue to put humans. Of course, we'll always put them first, but we'll put them kind of a thousand miles in the air, and then right. everything else is ten feet in the air. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I think sense. you make a good point. Yeah, I think with uh, if we're looking at the lens of um, the environment, like the saving the earth, then like, yeah, maybe maybe VR is not the best thing. I mean, I guess that you, I could, if I really wanted to argue against that, go back to, you know, what if you could place someone inside of a, a rainforest and then have them see it be chopped away? Mm, you know, you could sure. fast forward and be like, this is beautiful, isn't it? Like, well, this is what's happening now. Yeah, definitely. Not sure how effective that would be, but um, well, that's what yeah. When- when I was said a few minutes ago, I felt more optimistic than I've felt in a long time. That's exactly kind of what I was thinking was, okay. can we create these experiences that, you know, deliver the empathy from afar, right? Where you don't have to, I, I'm of the belief that no matter how much you read or how much you listen or how much uh, you're watching, we can learn and, and grow a lot of understanding in the world, but through direct experience, it's, it's always just going to be a bit more powerful and so maybe if vr is capable of delivering those experiences and kind of leveling the playing field because you buy that what a few hundred dollar device i mean maybe it's mm-hmm. not a level playing field at the moment when it's expensive but if it mm-hmm. comes to the point where it's you know twenty dollars and then five dollars a month to subscribe to the netflix of you know all experiences <laughs> in the world then <laughs> yeah. you know everybody has the the ability to experience just as much as anybody who has you know a trust fund to travel with for life or their own private jet right i don't know indeed maybe yeah i don't know either but i'm I'm excited to see what happens that's yeah. for sure excited i'm less terrified after our oh, conversation good. so far <laughs> but uh yeah okay one 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 question sorry are you did you have you were you were still going there don't let me interrupt you but i oh, did no. have one question oh, i want to get to for go you. ahead yeah, please. So, you know, even when I came home from, you know, being away for a couple of years and I came across like Venmo and Uber, <laughs> which at the time I had never even heard of. And people are talking about them like, you know, they're part of their daily life, their entire life. And even, you know, those are not extraordinarily impressive tools as compared to what I think there's potential for and what I'm hoping maybe is coming to exist now. I don't know. Do you have any, I guess, just because of this podcast is, you know, the, the objective is trying to figure out how individuals can most effectively figure out how to do good in the world Mm -hmm. and do it as efficiently and effectively as we can. So I think that in the broadest sense, of course, technological advancement, you know, increases our potential of being able to access certain tools that can allow us to do this better. So maybe you have any in mind that you can point us towards, um, or any that are you, you see potential for in the future, maybe mm-hmm. something to keep an eye out for. Yeah. Any I mean, I, I would say that you as an individual, if you're trying to go out and do good in the world, then I mean, the first step is to figure out what the hell you want to do, which it seems like most people uh, haven't been able to do. I mean, it's a hard question. It's a it's like, I think it's a constantly moving target. I'm still trying to figure it out completely. Um, and I, I think the best question to ask there is like, how, how do you want to help? I mean, I know you already said like doing good, but um, 
I think that's how you find your ultimate passion is like, how do you want to help people? How do you want to help the world? And then once you figure that out, then it's, it's a matter of using specific tools so that you can actually implement that. Um, I mean, the first thing, like meditation is an obvious thing. It's not necessarily a good technological tool, but in terms of sharpening the most important tool you have, Absolutely. your mind, right? But I won't go into that because you can just Google meditation and read everything about it. Um, <laughs> I, I guess maybe that's why in the podcast I tried to in gen stay as broad as possible when I say in, you know, in the most general sense, do good. Because that for everybody, that's going to be a very different definition. I, I'm a strong believer that we are each a you know, very unique compilation of resources that can be put to use for, you know, uh, cultivation of our own well-being and happiness as well as that of, of others. And if we look at ourselves and we understand our collection of particular skill sets of, of creativity, of, of geographical location as related to a certain issue or cause of, uh, you know, financial resources and what, what we have at our disposal, all of these together make each of us extraordinarily unique. So I don't think there's ever going to be that, that answer people are looking for, what are you supposed to do or what, what can one person do? But I, I hope that through trying to share enough tools as possible, we can all figure out how we can each do what we, we, we can do to do the best. But that said, there are a few ways that everybody can do a good amount if you, you know, have the capability of, of, of doing that one being, we can say that being raised in, in the U.S. and having a certain income allows you to, without a great deal of sacrifice, donate to highly effective nonprofits that we see the evidence to support will, in fact, save lives and cure blindness and, and solve a great deal of problems if donated highly effectively to that very, very small portion of organizations. We know that we can volunteer in certain ways that are more effective than others. Hopefully that volunteering is accessing, you know, understanding who we are as a resource and investing ourselves as wisely as we can with that in mind. And uh, yeah, that list goes on. But uh, sorry, mm -hmm. carry on. I, I definitely interrupted. <laughs> I, I <tend> <laughs> no worries. Well, if, I mean, out there, if you are new to meditation, just know that don't follow the blogs online. Don't do it for 20 minutes. Don't go sit for 20 minutes. You're going to hate it. Uh, just do baby steps, do 10 seconds, do 30 seconds, follow your breath or listen to music very intently. And if you, uh, your awareness goes away, just go back to it. Don't beat yourself up and then keep going until you can go for 30 seconds without, uh, your attention wavering and then go up to a minute. You wouldn't tell everyone to go to a first Vipassana retreat right away. <laughs> I think I know oh your gosh. opinion on that. <laughs> yes. No, I would, I would not definitely, uh, yeah. If you're going to go to the gym for the first time, you're not going to lift 600 pounds on uh -huh. your first try. Uh -huh. So start simple. Yeah. I don't, um, for people who don't know what that is, Vipassana is a 10-day silent meditation retreat that's very intensive, 10 hours of meditation a day. And Jordan and I have each done one and have certain opinions <laughs> about it. But <laughs> it's the most difficult intense. thing I've ever done by far. Mm -hmm. Most miserable, <laughs> yes. is that what you said? I said most difficult. Difficult, difficult. Yeah. yeah. Not oh, necessarily sure. miserable, but very, very difficult. Um, for sure. And then, uh, I'd say once you've figured out what you want to do and you're meditating, so you can actually like have the bandwidth to focus in on that and be present with it. Then like the number one thing I'd, I'd say is like, get a fantastic to do list app or like just structure for writing down to do's so that you can just, I mean, it's, especially when you're starting your own thing. I mean, even if you're not doing that, it's, there's just so much to do. It's so easy to get overwhelmed and kind of get stuck doing nothing. Um, so I would get a to-do to app or get a journal 
and then uh, use what is uh, called an Eisenhower matrix. And I guess this came from President Eisenhower. I don't know if that's a real thing or like internet rumor, but the idea is that you make a grid um, and you have uh, ur the top, it's a two by two grid and the top is urgent and important. And then the left side is, you know, like not urgent, not important. And you make X's and you basically just, just put the things on your list that are both urgent and important. Um, and if something is not urgent and not important, don't even just forget about it. Don't even do it. Um, and then you can kind of make decisions for the other two. Um, and just put things on your list that one are, are in that urgent important list. And also that you can actually accomplish in that day. Don't put 30 things on there. Cause you're going to feel like you, you know, you didn't do enough at the end of the day, just like punt you know, everything but the top five or whatever you think you can do till the next day and just take baby steps every day towards your goal. And is that's that like, secret, that's man? really it. That's the secret. It really <laughs> is. It's like, keep your eye on the prize on the big vision. And then, uh, you know, think about your big vision in the morning, like ideally right after you meditate and then go into work and just, just be hyper focused on the things that are right in front of you. I didn't then, think you'd be making lists, man. I thought you'd have an app for that or something. D does that exist? <laughs> I can't can't imagine lists being written at Futurism. I, I thought. Oh, dude, no, no. I'm just saying because certain tables. people like writing things. No, I definitely have an iPhone app that I use prolifically <laughs> for this purpose. I had a feeling. I had a feeling. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. I think I really do think that's the big secret. Just baby steps every day. Then one day you'll look up. It's been a year. And you've taken so many baby steps that you build something massive. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, let's see. Any any wisdoms to leave us with here before before we let you go? go I, I did want to ask if you did have a, a vision, right, of of the future. I know we touched on a couple elements of what it might consist of, but maybe not your most uh, utopian vision of what could possibly but unlikely happen. But maybe more uh, pragmatically speaking, what you see, you know, coming of the world if technology is utilized for the right reasons and we are effective in trying to um, steer that towards solving our problems. What what do you see happening? What's uh, what's what's the world you want to be part of in, in 20 years if that happens? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's uh, going to be kind of a broken record, but it, for me, it all ties back to basic income. Like it just seems very inevitable. The utopic version is that we figure out that we need it before we need it. You know, that we don't go through this this very difficult time, tumultuous time of, of uh, you know, mass unemployment, mass unrest, uh, hunger, people in the streets. Um, hopefully we have the foresight to be able to implement it before then so we can avoid all that hardship. Um, but, you know, if the it doesn't really matter the road that we take to get there, I think we're going to get there. And that just so many things are going to get so much better once it's implemented so that that's my my big vision for the future and then if, you know of course we'll have hyperloop and we'll be going to mars and um we'll have ai doing all types of things for you that you don't that you just don't want to do well i mean we'll have robots writing symphonies that are as good or or better than beethoven uh, to me that's extremely exciting uh I mean, if you haven't heard the term singularity, which I don't really like to talk about because it's it's got a lot of weird connotations with sure, it. Sure. Rick Kurzweil has done a number on that word. Um, but the the real definition of singularity is when uh, we have a robot that is as capable, as intelligent as a human being, but they're actually better because robots can think a billion times faster than a human. Um, and so that kind of intelligence is so beyond us that uh, singularity is meant to be the point at which we can't understand what happens after that. Like change will happen so quickly. More will happen in one year than has happened in the yeah. last thousand years. Um, 
so yeah, that's where we're headed, and it's uh, it's pretty, it's pretty wild. I'm pretty happy to be alive at this point. Yeah, man. When when's that gonna happen? A couple of years? Oh years? no, not a couple of years. <laughs> I mean, the predictions are all over the map. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, that's Kurzweil what I've seen. saying he, Ray Kurzweil just just edited his uh, prediction to be 2029. I think that's hyper optimistic, and I'm a very optimistic guy, as you can probably tell. Uh, I would say like 2060. Okay, something like that. Okay. Yeah, I might still, yeah, we'll be, still be around. We'll see. I will be around. Yeah. Yeah, we got this. All right. All right, man. Well, any anything to leave us with? Where can uh, people get in touch with you or or follow you? I know, of course, futurism uh, among five million others. Following that on uh, on Facebook, people can find that. And uh, anything else to to throw out there? I'll, I'll I'll throw all these links in the show notes so people can find you. Uh, yeah, you guys can find me on Facebook. That's like my number one platform I use. Yeah. And otherwise, yeah, check out Futurism. Let me know what you think. Cool. All right, man. Are you gonna come back in in a couple of years and tell us about all the things that have changed and blow us <laughs> away about you know twenty twenty nine becoming twenty twenty one? Well, if a robot hasn't taken over the podcast industry, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> oh, and you're just in bored, just in boring time. in comparison, yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> all right man i yeah, did okay good. i did hear something crazy that technology now to take the voices recordings of people in the past and then just create new content maybe that's actually gonna happen man that wasn't oh that's joke, absolutely was gonna happen i'm oh. laughing but you're like this is i'm serious no, man. that's a thing yeah <laughs> all right man cool well thank you so much man and uh again people can check out all of his all your details on the show notes and find it pretty easy cool thanks for having me logan Right. So <laughs> I did my very best to keep this under an hour. And I guess as a consequence, I had like 20 other questions I wanted to ask him, you know, that we didn't quite get to. So maybe that's just an excuse to bring him back on again for another conversation before too long. I guess, <laughs> I guess as long as the robots don't take over the podcast by then. But I think we have a little time uh, to work with before then. But hey, if... <laughs> A robot can do a better job than I can and can communicate good ideas for impacting change in the world, then perfect. I officially, <laughs> don't know if I thought I'd ever say this sentence, I officially welcome the robots to the podcast. Um, we'll see what happens. Uh, and speaking of robots, well, <laughs> not really at all, speaking about, speaking of computing, maybe, you know, if you enjoyed the episode uh, you might consider hopping on that computing device you have, you know, either in your hands or in your lap, and consider subscribing on iTunes. And if you, you know, you could also check out the SoundCloud accounts, uh, check out the Facebook page, um, you know, click that like button. These are all just ways to help spread the word, uh, give a little bit, um, I don't know, exposure to the podcast. And I believe in the the ideas being shared and their importance. And I just hope to spread them. So these are all ways of doing that. And if you really, really uh, appreciated the ideas, the uh, extremely helpful thing to do is to leave a review on iTunes. Just takes a minute, uh, literally one minute. Um, So that goes a long way. And, you know, if you have any friends that would appreciate the ideas, consider sharing and um, putting on social media, whatever you can do. Uh, All things are much, much appreciated. And all these links can be found at logansullivan.com. 
All right. I guess that wraps it up again. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. That's, that's all for now, and I'll be back uh, with a lot more ideas to share every Monday and every Wednesday. <laughs>